The message this morning is based on 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. We'll read that together, the text of the message this morning. Page 225. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a certain man of Ramaathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but... He will, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I'm sure as we read these words together, 
Many of us could identify with the sorrow, the grief, the longing of Hannah to have a child. I think all of us could also identify with the feelings expressed in our text of, of frustration with life. Even beyond the longing for a child, this is something that we experience the youngest of us to the oldest. Children, sometimes you, you can't figure out why you can't just get what you want all the time. Teenagers, we know that you often feel misunderstood by your parents or by your teachers. Young adults can often feel out of place, looking for something but not knowing exactly what. And so many people are longing for things like friends, marriage, or children, a feeling of happiness, acceptance, health, freedom, things that God has not yet given to us, may not give to us. So often we, we struggle for, to find comfort for ourselves and, and then when others are suffering to find the words to say to comfort others. Life after the fall into sin is like that, both for those of us who are part of a church community and, and also for those who are not. A lot of life is spent seeking, longing for more, for fulfillment. The Lord gives us, has given us 1 Samuel chapter 1, so the first place we may know that he understands our tears, he understands the the feelings of despair that we often have. And he also gives us this chapter so that we may learn to place our hope and confidence in him when things are going badly for us, so that we also know the, the root cause of our misery and the only answer to this misery. The clear message of our text is that the people around us, the things of this world are ultimately unable to bring us out of feelings of disappointment and despair. Having plenty of food will not take away that deep-seated longing. Kind friends, a husband's love cannot save a person from the, the deep misery that is caused from the fall into sin. Only God can save us from that misery. I preach to you this gospel under the theme, the, the Lord of hosts blesses Hannah's urgent longing for an end to tearful despair. We'll see a messy church, a messianic focus, and the Messiah who brings peace. If you have your Bibles open in front of you, you can notice that Samuel is found in a section of Scripture that starts with the judges and includes Ruth and then comes into to Samuel. It's because 1 Samuel took place in the period of the judges of Israel after the Israelites had entered the promised land and before they were united under one king. So both Eli the priest and, and Samuel were named and considered judges in the land. Their names can be added to the famous people we know from the book of Judges like Gideon and Deborah and Samson, people whom God used to, to rally the people of God in their battle against their enemies. It's not surprising that there are several parallels between the description of Samson's birth in Judges 13 and and Samuel's birth, both with a a barren wife giving birth to a son who would help with the redemption of the people of Israel. 
They describe the intervention of the Lord in those days when there was no king in the land. And says Judges 21 verse 25, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Even among the faithful remnant through whom the Lord was working to bring the Messiah, there appears to be a lot of confusion. And, and 1 Samuel highlights that. It begins right away in, in verse cha- chapter 1, verse 1. When we try to figure out who this certain man named Elkanah was, where he came from. We read he is of Ramathaim Zophim, which is in Ephraim. Think a list of, see the list of tribes that come out of this, Ephraim. He went to a home which is named Ramah, which is usually associated with the tribe of Benjamin. He is said to be an Ephrathite, which is by Bethlehem, which would make him of the tribe of Judah. But this is problematic because First Chronicles 6 lists his ancestors as descendants of Levi and Kohath. Although, as we put it together, it makes sense to identify Elkanah as a Levite of the clan of the Zophites who lived in a city that was known both as Ramathaim and, and Ramah because the Levites didn't have their own tribal land. The, the, the feeling that the text gives to us is, is vague and, and blurry. You get the sense that, that things were getting a bit messy among the tribes this time of the Judges. Now you might not think that this is a very big deal because your national and your family origins don't mean a lot for who you are today. But in the Old Testament, at that time in the history of redemption, the promise of God to bring a Savior was connected to a descendant from a particular tribe, the tribe of Judah. And losing track of the family lines because of the intermixing of the tribes, was the same as losing hope in the promised Messiah. Today, it would be like the church losing track of where salvation could be found. Like not being able to tell the next generation whether God was bringing salvation through Allah or Buddha or Christ. Because the only thing that the spiritual leaders were telling you was that it's good to have some sort of religion in your life. It was a sign. The people in those days were only living for the moment, going through the the motions. There was a real possibility that the hope and the promised Messiah from the tribe of Judah would be lost forever. Things were messy in the church. And as we look at our, our text, we might be a bit optimistic. We could read... But after the period of Judges, there still was a place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It's referred to as the House of the Lord or the Temple of the Lord, the Tent of Meeting. We might be optimistic because there were still priests and worshipers. But things had gotten very far from the picture of worship that the Lord had given in the law. Once again, we are struck by the the vagueness of reference when we read about this annual feast of the Lord of hosts, which doesn't easily connect to to any one of the three annual feasts that the faithful Israelite was supposed to attend. It seems that Elkanah at this time was just following in in the traditions that had been developed over time. Things had kind of changed 
during the period of Judges, there was now just one annual feast, and it was to the, the general divinity, the Lord of hosts. In addition, when we read in verse 3 that Hophni and Phinehas were the priests of the Lord, we know that this was not a good thing. If you keep reading about who these men were, you could see that it was a shame to Eli. It was a shame to all the people that they were the men serving as priests. Things were, were so messy at that time that Eli assumed a woman who was pouring out her heart before the Lord in prayer in the tabernacle was a drunken woman. And his treatment of this vulnerable woman who finally had the courage to pour out her, her heart before the Lord, it's, it's more than a little disturbing. Like it so often happens in church history, although many of the, the forms were there, those Leaders who had not become corrupt were leaders who had no passion for God, no understanding of what it was about. Their worship was Christless, which made it not only worthless, but also harmful to God's people. We see that when we, when we took a look, we took a look at Alcana's house, his family situation. It lacks all knowledge of the will of God, the hope of the Messiah, the office bearers in our midst are, are thinking what kind of things would be addressed if they, they would go in with a, with a family visit in this home. You who know the Ten Commandments could just see how many of them were, were totally disregarded. We read in our text that Elkanah had two wives. Now though some have argued that this practice was not explicitly condemned in the Old Testament, the Bible is very clear that this is not God's original plan for marriage and that those who had more than one wife were not fit to serve as an elder or deacon in the New Testament church. It's not surprising that that jealous love that God created us to have for our one wife or our one husband, it cannot stand the, the strain of that in-home constant comparison and competition that results from two women married to the same man. We see that in the wording, the description that is, is used. In verse 6, Peninnah and Hannah are described as rivals. And the word for rival there has a sense of enmity or even, even enemies. And in this rivalry, Peninnah had the advantage in the home because of her ability to have children. Peninnah had the power over Hannah to provoke her grievously and perhaps justified by her feeling of that she was less loved than Hannah, she set out to irritate Hannah. She was a hatred. Those who set out to irritate someone else showing that they have no regard for the sixth commandments. And then she had a special point of doing this, especially when they went to the the house of the Lord. Desire to have a, a separation between the Lord and Hannah. Elkanah's reaction, we read verses, verse 8, was not helpful. First of all, we read, actually in verse 4, that he would give a double portion. Verse 5, he would give a double portion to Hannah. Perhaps it was an attempt to to cheer her up. We know that it only made her feel more pitied. 
was drawing attention to the fact that she had no children. We can understand, can't we, women, why she didn't eat it. It wasn't enough to take away her pain. She didn't want to give that impression. And then Elkanah's questions in verse 8, they make us wince. They show how little Elkanah understood. They show that Elkanah was more concerned about himself than about his wife. Get the sense that this refusal of Hannah to eat, to accept his double portion, her weeping, made him look bad in public. When he asked, am I not more to you than ten sons? He shows that he's more concerned with his own inadequacy than he is with Hannah's well-being. How would you like that, women, if you're grieving and your husband speaks like that to you? Maybe, maybe if he turned it around and said, you are worth more to me than, than ten sons. Maybe if Hannah could be reminded of her value as an individual that wasn't dependent on her ability to have children, But Hannah didn't even have that comfort. As we see very clearly how the text is showing the suffering that Hannah was experiencing. The mess, the church, and the resulting suffering for the vulnerable. Well, that messy lack of understanding about the Word of God in in her country, the, the wrong impression that it gave in the church about who the Lord was, and in, then in, in, even in her own home, it brought an intense despair. It brought a, a bitterness to Hannah's life. And she had little guidance to help her understand how to respond to the fact that the Lord had closed her womb. And so we read of Hannah's experience in this messy church without any guidance and any reference point to understand how to deal with, with everything. We read in verse 10 that there was was bitterness. There was weeping, despair. And then in verse 15, she she explains that she has a troubled spirit. She uses a word that that speaks of of a hardness, a numbness in in her heart. She speaks of anxiety. She speaks of vexation, including complaining and, and, and anger. And then we see it brothers and sisters, take away the the hope of being redeemed by God. Once that Messiah gospel is is blurred over, then you end up with the tearful despair that Hannah represents. We can see the parallels between Hannah's tearful despair and the suffering church that cannot see Christ in the center of their lives. A church that's trying to make herself find satisfaction and be happy and content with just the things in this life. Hannah went years without bringing these complaints before the Lord. Year after year, we read. She she represents the experience of the church that's losing sight of God's promises. 1 Samuel 1 is about the faithful remnant that is suffering affliction in their hearts 
As long as they are experiencing this, this clouding over, this, this blurriness, this obscuring of the work of God in their lives. Our text is about the church led by Hannah, a church that is crying out to the Lord in prayer to guide her, her back to Him and has promised to send a Messiah. But we see by the grace of God, Hannah does turn to the Lord. The Lord shows her the way out, the mess, the suffering. See that in our second point, she has a messianic focus. Now like Israel and in Egypt, we read about them suffering and suffering, and then finally they, they cried out to the Lord, and He remembered His people. So also now we see that, that Hannah, after so much suffering, she, she left the, the meal, and she went off by herself. Courage, seek the Lord, praying to the Lord. She had not lost faith in, in her God and in the promises of God to, to grant relief. All that we sang about in Psalm 42 or Psalm 33, that, that hope of the Redeemer in her heart was not yet gone. The Lord used that faith in the promises of God. If the context of the judges helps us to understand the darkness and the mess in the church in the days of Hannah, that the context of the book of Ruth shows us how that promise of the anointed Messiah remained center in the, in the center of the lives of the faithful remnant. It shows that there was still the, the work of the Lord in the midst of His, his messy church. And then see, when we see that, we can understand better what Hannah was really longing for as she turned to the Lord. Her prayers, her cries, her tears need to be understood in the, in the context of the Messiah preparing work that God was already doing in Ruth and Boaz's life. And then we see that, that Hannah's crying and her weeping and her affliction is, is not because of simply a desire for affirmations of her value in the world. She wasn't just seeking relief for herself she wasn't just praying that her husband might be wiser or her rival wife might leave her alone. She is really longing for an end to all sin and misery. She's longing for that, that promise of the, the Messiah. So she's expressing the, the, the Old Testament church's desire for the coming Messiah that Zechariah and Elizabeth were still holding to, as we read in the New Testament. Oh, in her distress, then Hannah did the right thing. She left the people around her and the food and her rival wife, and, and she went to the Lord. She went to the remnants of the symbol of the Lord's presence among them to pray to the, the God of Israel who had established His covenant with His people. The Lord's love and grace is more than the love that any husband or any human on earth can provide. And as we see this response, brothers and sisters, we, we also see how the Spirit is, is urging us in the midst of our anxiety and, and concerns and vexation and even complaints and anger to, to turn to the Lord vulnerably. Look at the sincerity. Look at the tears of Hannah. Look at how she throws her life into His arms. You see how many psalms 
Give us the words to express this longing for comfort, this trust in the promises of the Lord. Look at the examples, the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ, the instruction of the apostles to, to turn to Him in our distress, to remember His faithfulness, to find comfort in what He has said. We see how coming to the Lord also gave clarity to Hannah. While, while Eli thought she was, was drunk, Hannah's response revealed that she was perfectly clear. In fact, things were becoming even more clear. Eli, whom she respect, addressed with respect as her Lord, needed to know that she was not a, a daughter of Belial, which has a sense of she was not a worthless woman. Hannah was not struggling with self-esteem issues. And she certainly was not the type of woman who had the habit of getting drunk in the temple. She wasn't pouring out drinks for herself. She was pouring out her soul before the Lord. She was a mother of the church, of the Lord of hosts, the covenant God. She was extremely concerned about where things were going among the covenant people of God and, and the consequences this had for, for the women, the men, the families in the church. Hannah shows that this is her concern, that she was concerned with the future of the church and not so much with herself. She was concerned about the work of the Lord by her prayer. She prayed not just for a child. The child would take away her shame. Her child would make her acceptable to her husband. If, if that was her only concern, she would pray for a child. But no, very specifically, she prays for a male seed, a son. And that specific request for a male child, when either male or female would have ended the provocation, shows that she had in her mind the promise of the child of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The only hope for the people of God in all times and places. Hannah was praying in faith. Perhaps she was thinking of her barren ancestors who were finally granted the miraculous birth of a child and were eagerly desiring the promised Messiah. Hannah was afflicted and distressed and anxious because she eagerly longed to be the servant of the Lord, an instrument in His hand to further His work in the world. That's the faith that God works in, in the hearts of all his people. That, that longing for the fullness of the kingdom of God. Hannah confirmed this desire with her vow to dedicate this son to the Lord all the days of his life. She took the Nazarite vow, which was typically just a temporary vow of dedication, number six, and she made it a, a, a lifetime vow for her son was not yet even conceived. No razor shall touch his head, she said. She wanted it to be known that if a son was granted, the whole world, the whole land would know that it was God at work in their midst again. Now we'll look more at this dedication next week. But we see that, that Hannah was, was praying for the hope that her covenant God had given to his people by promising a Savior. And so in that messy church, everything's were getting obscured. The Lord brought light to his people in the prayers and in the hope and the remembering of Hannah. And even the old Eli would come to see this. He gave divine confirmation 
that she was seeking. Eli did know the Lord. And it's, this, it's, it's as if Hannah's words awakened something in his, his mind, something that had been obscured over the passage of time. He was used to just doing things, coming in, doing his work, and, and not thinking about what it all meant. But now the Lord had set before him a woman who still believed in the promise of the coming Messiah, a woman who longed to be a servant in the hand of the Lord. This broken, distraught woman was alone and, and misunderstood in a world that had forgotten God's promises, had hardly known God's will, had become so calloused in worship because of their self-centered focus. And then she, she exemplifies that desire that the Holy Spirit works in, in the hearts of faithful believers today to, to maintain that light, to hold up Christ even in, in, in the eyes of those who are, are not seeing it. It appears that Hannah's prayer and her explanation helped Eli to recognize that the tent of meeting and, and the sacrifices and the priests and, and the worship and, and this desire for a male child only made sense if people believed the promised Messiah. And so his tone quickly changed. What a blessing it must have been for Hannah to see this. The Lord begins his blessing with the confirmation of, of Eli. So Eli shares in her, her vexation. He, his eyes are open to see what she is, is praying for, what, what the country, the, the nation, the church needs. And so he takes his role of a mediator that he was appointed to be. And his words are, are filled with hope as he sent Hannah on her way. He, he says to her, go in peace, verse 17. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. He had been callous with her, inexcusably callous in her vulnerability. He would continue, we read, to lack the courage to defend the name of the Lord himself. But in the midst of that, even seeing his own weakness, he, he joined in praying for a Messiah. And so the Lord used Hannah to prepare his church for the coming Messiah, the Messiah who brings peace. The Lord blessed Hannah's desire for an end to misery and despair by giving her a clear vision of the nearness of the Lord her God. The Lord looked upon her affliction. He heard Eli's prayer for peace. And when she went her way and she ate, her face, her sad face left her. The Holy Spirit shows us that connection between pouring out our hearts to the Lord and then experiencing the calmness of knowing that everything is okay, that He is God Almighty, that He is in control. Hannah understood when she received this child. We read about in verse 20 that the Lord had heard her prayer. What a source of hope to her. And although Hannah may not have known to what extent the Lord would use Samuel, we know, we, we could see how Samuel was used to, to redirect the people's attention to the Lord, to His Word, to justice in the land. He would even anoint the king at Ruth from the line of Ruth. As we just look at all this, brothers and sisters, we, we can see again how on the one hand we, we still feel a lot of the bitterness and the sorrow and the anxiety that, that Hannah felt. We even feel that even after the Christ, the promised Messiah, has come. 
We might be able to clearly identify with that understanding the church is meant to be a place where, where we're happy, but sometimes because of the suffering and, and the frustration and the, and the expectations that don't come the way we want, it's a place that can sometimes be hard to be happy. The world and its effects and, and to so, fall into sin can obscure the hope that we have in Christ. And yet the gospel message of our text is very, very clear. God is working in the world. God is still at work in the world. You could see that when you look back in his faithfulness. You could see that he, he was working in the days of Abraham and, and Sarah when the promised land was marked out. And he was working in the days of Elkanah and Hannah when he was preparing the world for the kingship of his son, Jesus Christ. And he did it again when the barren Elizabeth was longing for the Messiah. Well, it's the same God showing mercy to the same church and the, and the same despairing world. But the hope that Samuel pointed to, we know today was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Not just for Israel, but for the whole world. The gospel we remember and rejoice in at this time of, of Christmas celebrations is that Mary gave birth to the Messiah that Hannah and all the faithful women of the Old Testament were longing for. And so he changed everything for the church today. Although we do not have that blessed peace of the restored kingdom that will only be ours when Christ returns and, and establishes everything the way it should be, we are further along in the history of redemption than Hannah was. There's only one step left before all the misery in the world is brought to an end. Our Lord Jesus Christ brings peace. Though we weep, though we suffer, we reflected on that at the very beginning of the message. We were thinking that so many different ways we get frustrated because we're misunderstood. Hear his word. He is with you by his spirit. He knows our pains. He remembers his people. And he has told us he is coming back to restore all things to the way they once were. Not as, not as a child to be born from one woman in the church. We don't have that same desire of Hannah that our child might be the Messiah to restore all things because Jesus was born. But he is coming again as the glorious king who is seated on, on the throne of glory. And then we see that parallel between Hannah's prayers and the church's prayer that, that Jesus Christ might come Come, Emmanuel, restore all things. May we pray for his return with the same urgency of Hannah, for the same reasons as Hannah, not personally, but for the glory of his name. Comforted, as the Lord has shown that he blesses our longing for an end to misery. And he comes again in glory to bring an end to it all. Amen.